This class primarily focuses on domestic nonprofits, like almost all of your startups that you're doing are in the U.S. except for one. And even a lot of the laws and the policies and approaches focus on the U.S., but a huge part of the nonprofit sector is the global nonprofit sector and international NGOs. It's not a huge focus of this class, but we have one particular lecture dedicated to it, and I thought I'd bring in an expert in the field. And so Professor Brass, this is her area of expertise, not necessarily the whole world, but her main focus is on Sub-Sahara Africa and NGOs in that region. And so she's going to talk about global and international NGOs. Professor Brass. Okay, thank you. So just to tell you a little bit about myself, I see a couple familiar faces, but most of you I don't think I know. I am a professor here in SPIA. Uh, this, I think, is my seventh year on the faculty. And my research focuses on nonprofits in developing countries, mostly in sub-Saharan Africa. So some of my research looks at, I just published a book called Allies or Adversaries, NGOs and the State in Africa. So it looks at nonprofits and how they interact with states to provide services to people. And then I also have another project that looks specifically at energy services, so lighting and cooling and electricity, and electrification, mostly again in Africa, where a majority of people don't have access to electricity. So that's just a little bit about me, so you have an idea of who's standing in front of you. So today I'm going to be talking about international nonprofits. It'll be sort of just a very, very broad overview. If you have any questions at any time, feel free to just raise your hand. Happy to answer questions. So what I'll be talking about is sort of an overview of NGOs in developing countries, and then focusing more specifically on challenges that international NGOs face. And we'll look at four sets of challenges. So challenges related to funding, which are in your reading a bit. Challenges related to accountability, so who NGOs that work in development are responsive to, whether donors, the people who give them the money, or their recipients, the people they say they're helping. We'll look at cross-cultural work, some of the challenges that can come up, particularly if you're working in a country that's not your home country, and then challenges in political settings, so things like how is working in an authoritarian country Let's say, how would working in China be different than working for a nonprofit in the US or in a place like maybe India that are democracies? Just to give you a definition of NGOs so you know what we're talking about, very similar to talking about nonprofits. As your reading mentioned, if you did read your reading, I'm sure you all did your reading on Halloween. NGOs are basically, when we talk about nonprofits that are doing work in developing countries, we usually talk about NGOs rather than nonprofits. So a definition of NGOs, and this is from the Kenyan government, and I choose this one partly because I like this definition, I think it's a good definition, but also because I do a lot of work in Kenya. I bolded the key words or phrases, so we're talking about a private voluntary organization that is not operated for profit, so a nonprofit, which has organized itself either nationally or internationally. So either in one country or multiple countries. For the benefit of the public at large and doing things like social welfare, development, research, or charity. And you can see that's in things like health, humanitarian relief, agricultural work, education, 
industry and sort of supply of services. So very similar, I would guess, to nonprofits in the US. There's a lot of different acronyms that are used when we're talking about nonprofits in developing countries. So you might see these, you might see others as well. I think your reading mentioned also GONGOs, which are government organized nonprofits. You see a lot of GONGOs in authoritarian countries where the government doesn't want to give up full control of what's happening in the nonprofit sector. So the government organizes nonprofits, sort of an oxymoron. But the words that we see most often are the acronyms are NGO, which is non-governmental organization. CBO, which are community-based organizations, usually smaller organizations, not international. CSO, civil society organization. It often has some sort of democracy connotation, but not always, actually. FBO, faith-based organizations, so religiously organized organizations. And then there's a lot of multinational organizations that are not NGOs, they're not nonprofits, they're government organizations, so collections of government actors, like the World Bank, WB, the UN, the United Nations. People often think of the UN as an NGO, but it is not, so don't make that mistake. It's a collection of governments, so it's better to think of those as multinational organizations. So if you think about the services that NGOs provide, I'm going to turn this back on in a second. You can see this is actually specifically from Kenya, but you can see what types of things NGOs are doing. A majority in some countries and many, a plurality in many countries are doing sort of just general development work. So their work is not focused on any particular sector, but they might have a mission statement that says things like, our goal is to improve the quality of life in this place. Beyond that, the specific sectors you see most are health, marginal groups, that's programs focused on women, children, minorities, and the disabled, education, agriculture, the environment, and so on. And you can see here, this is a list of activities that different types of NGOs do in different sectors, just to give you an idea of what are we even talking about. So things like in agriculture, training on livestock rearing techniques, so that would be like the Heifer International. So training on how do you raise a goat so you can get milk from the goat, but you can also get more goats from the goat. So that's like the magic of the Heifer International is that you can take one animal and create lots of animals <laughs> with it. So how do you go about doing that? Health, this is an example, so HIV-related programs, anti-malaria programs, so things like bed net, distribution or education about bed nets. Malaria is spread by mosquito bites. So it turns out if people just have literally netting around their bed, they tend not to get malaria. Things like programs targeting street children. So you have orphans in a lot of places. Programs targeted at getting kids off the street. And then some very political activities. So voter registration activities, anti-corruption activities, democracy promotion, that kind of thing. This is an 8 o'clock class today after Halloween, so let's do a couple activities while we're here. I want you to take literally 60 seconds, turn to a person near you, next to you, and make a list of all the international NGOs you can think of. You can use whatever resources you have available. You want to use a computer, you want to use a phone, you want to use whatever, that's fine. One, two, three, go. Alright, let's talk about this. How many of you had six organizations? Okay, what did you have? We had the Acumen Fund. Okay. 
Doctors Without Borders, Red Cross, International Justice Mission, Danish Refugee Council. Refugee Council. We looked up a lot of these, so we hadn't heard of them. <laughs> okay, yeah, so Ackerman Fund, Danish Refugee Council, the Red Cross, International Justice Mission. You guys want to put your hand up as Greenpeace. Amnesty International. Amnesty International. Charity Water. Charity Water. The World Wildlife Fund. World Wildlife Fund. Does Habitat for Humanity count as a... Okay. Habitat for Humanity. Feed My Starving Children. Feed My Starving Children. Save the Children. There's a lot with the word children in them. Yeah, so these are all examples of international NGOs, although actually one of them bizarrely is sort of not an international NGO. It's a fun fact that really I don't need to tell you about going to anyway. The Red Cross is this kind of bizarre organization where it operates in almost every single country in the world, either the Red Cross or the Red Crescent, which are sister organizations. But it actually is sort of governmental, so the Red Cross only operates in places where the government has passed some sort of law or some sort of decree welcoming the Red Cross into the country to partner with the government to provide things. Fun fact about the Red Cross <coughs> that I learned when I was uh, doing research for my book. So I'm not sure how many of you thought of organizations that are relief organizations. So relief, that's like disaster relief-based organizations. We can think of Doctors Without Borders was mentioned. That would be one that is also a development organization to some extent, so providing health care. There's organizations that focus on human rights, so the International Justice Mission. That would probably be human rights focused. You have environmental organizations, so we mentioned Greenpeace. There's also organizations that are focused on recreation or sport. Has anyone ever heard of anything like that? I know there's one. I don't have the name of it, but I know like someone who won the show Survivor started it. Like it's oh. teaching kids about games through soccer. Yeah. So there's a bunch of them. I don't know what that one is specifically, but there's a bunch focused on soccer. So soccer is globally the most popular sport. I know there's one, so there's Doctors Without Borders. I know one called Soccer Without Borders. And a lot of those are meant to teach kids or adults in some cases about different things through sport. There's a bunch that are focused on post-conflict situations. So having kids from different sides of conflict come together and play sports to realize like, oh look, we're all just kids. That kind of thing. Professional nonprofits might be things like international associations of lawyers that kind of professional, more like a membership organization. If you're interested in finding out about more NGOs, you can visit these two websites called interaction.org and is a itself a membership association of development organizations. So if you're interested in getting involved in development and you've heard of like the major NGOs, but you're wondering what are NGOs that are more the main ones that everyone wants to work for. For example, if you wanted to work in an NGO, it's often good to start with a smaller organization because they're easier to get into. But you also, do you, do you use the NCCS in here? Not yet, no. Okay. We use it next week. Oh, so you can come and you can use this as an example if you like. Next week, you're going to learn about the National Center for Charitable Statistics, NCCS, which is data on nonprofits in the U.S. Basically, this is how you search for NGOs, international organizations, in that data set. So there's a lot of diversity in NGOs. You can think of diversity in a number of dimensions. So as we already mentioned, 
NGOs do lots of different types of activities. So they can do relief, humanitarian relief, disaster relief. So after conflict with refugees or during conflict with refugees. So think about the Syrian refugee crisis going on right now as an example. But also after natural disasters, so Hurricane Matthew. They can do development. So that is working on improving the livelihoods of people over time. <coughs> Often development activities are focused on uh, the principle of teach a man to fish. So this idea that if you give a man a fish, he can eat for a day, but if you teach a man to fish, then he can feed himself forever. So that's sort of the idea behind development activities. Basic needs, so that would be meeting people's basic needs, making sure they have clean water, food to eat, shelter, clothing, maybe basic health care, basic education, and then advocacy, advocacy being more political activity, lobbying for policies, for human rights, for that sort of thing. So lots of different types of activities. NGOs can vary on their ideology. So are they focused on humanitarianism? Is their goal to help anyone who is suffering? Are they evangelical? Are they focusing on some sort of religious mission? Do they have a religious ideology? Do they have an ideology of political neutrality? So they, are, they will go into any place regardless of the political conditions there and provide services? Or maybe they don't have that, so they might have an empowerment ideology. So they're going in to empower people to explicitly counter the dominant forms of power relations in a place. You can have variations in scope. Organizations can focus just on one issue area. They can say, this is our thing. Effort International is actually a great example of that. So they focus on livelihood improvement bought through giving animals. So that's a very specific single program NGO. Or they can focus on lots of things. So there's NGOs that do education work and healthcare work and advocacy work and agriculture work and environment work. And they do different programs. They do a number of programs in one place or they do lots of different programs depending on where they are. So you can have also a variety of geographic scopes. So there's organizations that are, let's say, based in the U.S. and they work only in one country, maybe Haiti, since we talked about Haiti earlier. Or you can have organizations that are based in the U.S. that are working in 10 countries around the world, 20 countries around the world, 100 countries around the world. You can also have organizations that are based in developing countries that are working in other developing countries. So one of the world's largest organization is called BRAC, which initially stood for Bangladesh Rural Action Committee. So BRAC is one of the world's largest organizations, and it was founded in Bangladesh and now has operations in dozens of countries. So they don't have to be based in a wealthy country. Different degrees of formalization. So oftentimes people use the word NGO to mean lots of different things. So they mean it to mean little organizations, they mean it to mean big organizations, they use it to mean international organizations, they use it to mean domestic organizations. So some might be more formalized than others. Here I've given the example of CBO and NGO. So a CBO is a community-based organization. Usually those are small local organizations. So things like, say you're in a farming community in India, and the women in that farming community all get together to have a savings club, or to talk about women's issues, or to work on women's empowerment. 
that would usually be considered a CBO. If that same organization then expanded, it got members in a bunch of different villages, and then registered with the government, it would be more formalized, it would become an NGO. Obviously, you can have big organizations and small organizations, but size can vary on a lot of different dimensions. So when we're talking about size, often people say like, oh, well, is that a big organization or a small organization? And then there's a secondary debate by, well, what does big mean? Often that's about, is it about the number of employees you have? Is it about the size of your budget? So you might have very few employees located in very few places, but be spending tons and tons and tons of money. So that might be a big organization. You might have one office, you could have 20 offices in a number of different countries or just in two countries, and so on. And then funding. So where do you get your money from? Do you get your money from the government? And if from the government, is it from the government of a wealthy country like the U.S., from an OECD country? Or do you get your money from the government of the place where you're working? So using the example of Kenya, are you getting your money from the Kenyan government? Do you get it from foundations? Do you get it from the private sector? Do you get it from individuals? Do you get it from churches? Combination of those is probably most likely. And if we look at NGOs, one of the reasons people are interested in NGOs these days is because we've seen incredible NGO growth over the past, I'd say, 50, 60 years. This is specifically the number of NGOs with consultative status at the UN. So basically, NGOs that have formally registered or been asked to consult with the UN on any number of issues, so UN <laughs> agencies. And you can see in 1948, this teeny tiny little bitty number of organizations, and by 2008, you have more than 3,000, and that's bigger again now. You can see this looking just at US-based organizations. So this is a global phenomenon, but you can see the same trend looking at a bunch of different places. The red line here is new relief and development organizations registered in the United States. And the green line is the ratio of new organizations to all new organizations. Um, but basically, they follow more or less the same line. So you see this massive increase largely following 1990. You're reading talked about why this has happened. So partly the Cold War ended and you had a wave of democratization and that brought with it a lot of organizations focused on things like human rights, democracy, anti-corruption. You also had around the same time, but really beginning in the 1980s, you had a change in how developed countries in particular thought about the world and they moved from a world where they focused on governments as being the correct answer to solve most problems to thinking of markets or businesses as being a better solution. This is a period during the Reagan years, Maggie Thatcher in the UK, but where you often talk about privatization. So one of the things that happens if you privatize lots of things, services in a lot of developing countries, things like healthcare, education, drinking water, things that have been provided by the government in this period and that donors were focusing on governments to improve and expand. They stopped being provided by governments or less of them were provided by governments and you had a growth of NGOs. The term people often talk about is filling the gaps where the state stopped providing services or stopped expanding service provision. 
So that was a lot of the move, is that you had NGOs step in because there weren't actually markets to develop these things, and particularly in very poor countries, those people didn't have the money necessarily to buy the things that you would expect a, a market to provide. So here's just a third example. This is NGOs registered in Kenya. So here with these charts just showing you that this is consistent in different places around the world. So this is the UN, that's the US, that's Kenya. You see very similar trends. The data is very hard to find for individual countries. So these were years that I could find in my own research for Kenya, basically where people had done this research. Starting around 1990, the government kind of started keeping track, but they really started keeping track more after 2000. There's now a database that sometimes they make available to people. But you can see about between seven and 8,000 NGOs in Kenya, registered in Kenya. So let's talk about the challenges or some challenges that NGOs face. So the first is a challenge in funding. This is looking at US-based organizations, where they get their funding. And here, the circled column is international organizations. And you can see that international organizations get most of their money so these are organizations that are registered in the United States but do work in the international arena. Kind of get from private payments, so that would be payments for services. They get about 20% of funding from the government, that's the U.S. government. Most U.S. government funds go to a very small number of very, very well-established organizations. So another fun fact is that about 10% of registered organizations working in this field get about 90% of all government contracts to do work. Mostly, they're getting funding from private gifts. So that's mostly from individuals, individual donations, and then 2% from investment. So you can see that this varies quite a lot from other types of organizations in the US. So for example, if we look at health or higher education, they're getting you know, half of their money from fees that they charge, whereas if you're thinking about the international development area, they're not able to charge those fees or there's not that kind of money available. What kind of people are giving the private gifts? Is it very globalized, like just coming from all different areas, or is it very concentrated in the different areas that the groups are in? It can be either, actually. So a lot of them rely actually on like lots and lots of small Gifts, so gifts like $50, $100, $500, $1,000. So things like Feed the Children or Save the Children, places that have a sponsorship programs, those often rely on small donations. But others are more concentrated, so you might see things like the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, that money is coming from, literally, Bill and Melinda Gates. So it depends a bit. They can be coming from, in this case, it's all money coming to U.S. organizations. Often people in a country will donate to the office in that country. So Americans will donate to the American office. And that's because there's tax benefits in the United States. You're reading talk about this a bit. So the United States is rather unusual in the amount of tax credit it gives people if they donate to charity. So in the U.S., overly simplifying this, if any of you are public finance people, you could maybe correct me, or tax people. A very simple version of it is money that you give to charity is money that you don't have to pay in taxes. So basically, if I give $10,000 in charity, 
and I itemize my tax return, I can say like, oh, I gave that $10,000 in charity, so I can count that against the money I pay in taxes. That's very unusual that we do that. We believe very strongly in privatization, and we think of private nonprofits as part of that privatization push. Yep. What are some examples of the fees that would be considered the private payments for health and education? So higher education might be tuition. So the tuition that you pay to IU combines with gifts to IU, so through the foundation, IU Foundation gets lots of gifts, combines with government funding, so the state of Indiana, I don't know if you guys know this, the state of Indiana, depending on what school you're in, provides between like 10 and 20% of funding to IU. So it is a state school, but most of the money at IU does not come from the state. And then investment would be, uh, IU has an investment account. Endowment. Endowment, thank you. And it generates money off the interest of that. But if you're not thinking higher education, if you're thinking hospitals, so you might have a nonprofit hospital that still charges a fee for service but it's not recouping the entire cost of that service. And you see that happening in the international setting as well. So you might have something like a clinic providing healthcare services, and they charge some sort of nominal fee to make sure that it's worth it to individuals, that they're not just using the services willy-nilly, but they're, they're investing something in it. And so they might charge something like a dollar fee, but the healthcare that people receive would cost more than a dollar. So that might be, it's a $20, thing that needs to happen and the people pay a dollar of it, that's like approximately 5% of it. So a lot of my research focuses on Kenya, if you had to call that by now. You can look at what this looks like for NGOs that are registered in Kenya. So I calculated basically where does the money come from. And in places like Kenya, you see a different breakdown. So here, most of the money is coming from foreign sources from the international environment. So that can be money from other governments. So let's say the U.S. government funds an organization to work in Kenya. It might be a U.S.-based organization. It could be a Kenyan-based organization. It could be an organization based in some other country that is working in Kenya. So that's what I mean by other governments, charity groups, and individuals. So charity groups could be international nonprofits, also individuals. It could be things like churches. So that's where most 90% of funding of organizations in Kenya it's not coming from within Kenya, it's coming from outside. <coughs> you can see another 8% coming from non-governmental sources within Kenya. So wealthy individuals in Kenya, companies and individuals in Kenya do a lot of donations. For example, I work with an education project in one of the slums of Nairobi, and it happens to be located in a place surrounded by factories. One of those factories happens to be a Tetra Pak, you guys know what Tetra Pak is? They make like juice boxes, milk boxes, like boxes of liquids with the cardboard and there. There's like one company basically that makes most of those in the world. So the Tetra Pak is located right by them and they package milk. So the Tetra Pak donates milk to the school. That would be an example of local non-governmental sources. And then only about 1% of funding in Kenya is actually from the Kenyan government. So the Kenyan government is not funding most of the NGO activities in Kenya. That's different in some other countries. So in Latin America, you have actually quite a lot of government funding for NGOs. But you can see that this would then be a challenge if you're trying to work in these countries, is thinking about, okay, well, where do we get our money from? 
You're basically spending a lot of time on fundraising. If you're, that's true for all nonprofits. It's particularly true for international nonprofits because if you're trying to cobble together an organization using, let's say, child sponsorship, where every child sponsorship program raises maybe $100 or $200 or $300 a year, you're going to need a lot of those to have, let's say, a million-dollar budget. There's a lot of uh, time and effort that goes into fundraising. One of the things that's kind of interesting about how the money flows is that it often goes through multiple organizations before it gets to recipients or beneficiaries of the programs. So this is a fictional but plausible example of an aid chain, an aid supply chain. So you might have something start with USAID, that's the US Agency for International Development, that's the US government organization that does international development work. They might give money to work on HIV AIDS activities in Malawi, which is a country in Southern Africa. So maybe they give it to the Malawi HIV AIDS Coordinating Committee. Let's just say this is a government agency. So in a lot of countries, NGOs have to pass the money through the government or at least make the government aware of it. It depends on the country. The Malawi HIV AIDS Coordinating Committee would then determine who in the country is best able to distribute that money. So it might go to Action Aid which is, if I recall correctly, I believe a South African-based organization or was founded in South Africa and works throughout the world now, but that's an international organization that might be operating at the provincial level. So they might be operating at a sub-national level in like six different places. And then ActionAid would say, okay, well, who's gonna actually distribute these funds and do this work in the country. We're this big international organization. We want the money to get to local people. So they would then work through CBOs, community-based organizations, to do trainings, to do whatever sort of HIV AIDS activity, maybe medical distribution. Yeah. On your last slide, so why wouldn't the government give to Lincoln per se? Are they just giving it to other things, or do they not feel like they need to since they're getting so much money from other places, like individuals or So I would say the Kenyan government is not funding NGOs to do the work because they do it themselves. So rather than outsourcing, rather than privatizing healthcare, well actually there's a lot of healthcare being provided by NGOs, but uh, education in particular, so Kenya has a universal primary education program. Actually, it now has universal secondary education as well. And so instead of giving it to NGOs to implement those programs, they're doing it themselves. That's the main reason, as opposed to places in Latin America where they're doing more privatization to nonprofits, more like what's happening in the US. So the US has quite a lot of privatization where we're having private actors implement public programs. But yes, it is also partially because these organizations are being funded externally. But that gets into, I think, what I'm going to talk about next, which is that some countries don't actually love having NGOs and private organizations, especially international organizations, do this kind of work. So they're kind of either anti these organizations or, in the case of Kenya, more agnostic. So they see pros and cons of it. So they don't actually want to fund international organizations doing work. The Kenyan government, going back to this, also does a ton of work through CBOs. But then it's basically the Kenyan government 
giving directly to Kenyan groups. So it's sort of that the Kenyan government doesn't want to give money to international organizations for work in Kenya. So the Kenyan government doesn't want to, let's say I go and work or any of you go and work, the Kenyan government doesn't want to pay my salary. So one of the challenges with funding is that a lot of countries, a lot of governments don't love that NGOs exist and they especially don't like international NGOs. And so they worry that NGOs are basically acting on behalf of donor organizations, whoever's funding them, and those donors are maybe trying to control their country or control their resources. So an example of that would be in Zimbabwe, Robert Mugabe, who's been president since 1980, frequently threatens to ban NGOs from international places. He basically says, particularly British and American organizations, so Zimbabwe was a British colony, it was Rhodesia, and he led the freedom fight, so Zimbabwe did not gain independence until 1980, so it's a very, very young country, and he's very skeptical of what international countries, particularly Western countries, are doing in his country, which is not entirely unreasonable given the history of colonization. You also see this is not an Africa-specific thing. Russia also does this. So Russia is extremely wary. So Mugabe threatens to do it, but doesn't actually do it. Whereas Russia actually has really, really stringent laws on foreign organizations and foreign funding of organizations. There's a number of countries around the world that have a maximum that organizations can receive from outside the country. A lot of places it's 10% of funding, so as opposed to this 90%, basically the government says 10% of funding can come from international sources, but we want to retain control over our sector, and so they don't allow any organization to get more than 10% of its funding. The way that Russia does it is that it has organizations register as foreign agents, and it basically register as very specifically that, like, yes, we are acting on behalf of foreign interests. And then they have just this like long list of requirements that they have to do. So they have to do quarterly reporting to the government, these like long, elaborate reports of everything they're doing. They have, they have these funding restrictions. They're closely monitored in a number of ways. It's not an African-specific thing. So countries that have bans or partial bans on foreign funding are places like Russia, Ethiopia, Eritrea, Jordan, China, Kenya actually keeps talking about doing one but hasn't. There's a number of other places. So this is one of the concerns. So if you are a foreign organization, it can then be difficult to work in some of these places. So a second challenge that we look at is thinking about funding. One of the things that NGOs have to do is provide lots of proof to their donors that they're doing the things that they're supposed to be doing. So they have to be accountable to their donors especially if they work for a large organization, or not work for, but they get money from like a government, USAID, or the UK government, or European government, or the Japanese government, or the Chinese government. They need to be able to say like, yes, we use this money on this and this and this, so there's very heavy reporting requirements. But this creates a challenge because most of these organizations want to focus primarily on what recipients need. There's sort of a tug of war between the donors on one hand who have 
tons and tons of requirements about how do you spend the money, when do you spend the money, how do you account for the money, you can spend the money on this and this and this, but you can't spend it on that. And the recipients who are saying like, oh, we need this or we want this, or can you help us with this? So you have this challenge where NGOs work to be accountable, both to their donors, so the donors, of course, are who they're getting the money from, and to the beneficiaries. So often donors will have specific program desires. A donor might say like, oh, we really want you to work in clean water and sanitation services. And so you go into a village and you say like, oh, we're here to bring you clean water and sanitation. And then you might find from those people, they might say like, that's not what we want. We want you know, agricultural assistance or we want better irrigation. We're fine with the water we drink, we boil it, it's fine. You don't need that. And so then you might have a tension between what the beneficiaries want or what they think they need and what a donor, particularly an international donor, might think that other people need. And beneficiaries often want things that donors won't fund. So one of the things that's very, very difficult to get funded is what are often called recurrent costs. So recurrent costs are things that recur over and over, so that keep happening. And those are things that are very hard to get donors to fund. So for example, salaries for people. So I work with this education program. They run a school, it's actually a thousand student school, non-formal school in the slum in Nairobi. And it's nearly impossible to get funds to pay for the teacher's salaries. It's really easy to get buildings built. Donors love to build buildings and then get like a plaque that has their name on it. So there's a bunch of those at this school. So one of them is like from the O'Brien Foundation. So you can get things like that, but often what people say they want, donors don't want to fund. So they think that programs should become self-sufficient, but there's a lot of things that don't become self-sufficient. So we don't expect schools in the U.S. to be self-sufficient. We rely on tuition, we rely on the government, and, and so on to provide those things. These tensions that NGOs face often are at odds with some of the ideals that we have in international development. So one of those is that we do participatory development. So this is the number one thing that we say that we're going to do in international development is make it participatory. We say this at the global level when we're talking about giving money to governments. We say we want country ownership. We want countries to design their own programs and implement them. But we say it at the local level, or lower levels as well, with NGOs, where we say, so our goal is for people to go in and, let's say, go to a village. Let's say you guys were a village. I would say, okay, well, let's talk about what you need, what you think you need, what the problems here are, and you work with the people to find solutions. So that's the ideal, is that people are determining what they need and NGOs are coming in to help them, help themselves to reach those things. But again, what often happens is a donor will say, oh, I want to fund this thing. And so then you try to figure out a way to make that match. It often doesn't. I mentioned this last thing already, that donors require massive amounts of record keeping. If you're a small NGO, you're a small nonprofit, that's very costly, very detailed reports and records, maybe quarterly reports to every donor that you have. You might have six donors, you're going to spend a lot of your time writing reports to those donors saying how you spent your money. There's pros and cons of that. So on one hand, you're being accountable, but on the other hand, you're using time that you could be using on beneficiaries to make your donors happy. 
And then there's other issues with donor funding cycles. So donor funding cycles tend to be short if you're looking at institutional donors, so really big donors, so governments, things like the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, the Global Fund, a lot of these big donors will give grants for one to five years, but a lot of development programs that you're gonna to wanna to do are gonna take a lot longer than, certainly longer than one year, but often longer than five years also to really make a difference. Another challenge that you have is uh, in working in cross-cultural settings. So one of the things that we find is that people don't always interpret everything that happens in the same way. They often don't, actually. Even in this room, if we did certain things, people might interpret it in multiple different ways. So you can imagine that if people in this room might see something happening and say, like, oh, this is happening or that is happening or the other thing is happening, if you're going to a completely different culture, that's going to happen even in more extreme ways. And so one of the things that happens is that people try to make sense of whatever international organizations are doing, but it doesn't always translate correctly. And so where you see cultural variation, here are some big things. There are also things like how cultures view women, what their religious backgrounds are, but in really broad terms, is the culture generally more individualist or more collectivist? Those are terms, individual is, the U.S. is a very individualist culture, so we believe that individuals, if they work hard enough, can make it. We believe in you know, pulling yourself up by your own bootstraps, that kind of idea. A collectivist culture tends to think less about what individuals do, and individuals think about themselves as part of some collective group, so uh, usually a family, maybe even bigger than a family, a clan or a village, an ethnic group, a religious group, and they will tend to make decisions more on the basis of that group, not on their own individual best interests. You have cultures that are more or less hierarchical, so real deference to elders or deference to people with power versus less. The U.S. is less hierarchical than a lot of places. And then you have cultures where people tend to take more risks or take fewer risks. So those would be three main differences. I want you to do another activity. This one will take a few more minutes. Let's say, well, we'll take four or five minutes. What you want to do is get back into your groups and think about this scenario. So let's say you work for a young U.S.-based NGO whose goal is to provide sustainable sources of food around the world. You've been doing work in East Africa. You've been super successful and you want to grow your program, scale your program up to other countries of the world. The pasture project has helped farmers grow sorghum and millet, nutrient-rich staple crops that are used in places in Africa, and to rear pigs. And you've decided to move to India, so you're expanding away from Africa into another continent. You're gonna to go to India, you've read about India, the history of India, about the soils, you know these crops will grow well. You've been welcomed into the village by a personal friend of yours from college whose parents originally came from this village in India. So thinking about this contextually, thinking about culturally, what knowledge do you need to know about this place where you're going in order for your project to be successful? So here you can think about cultural knowledge, but also do you need to know anything about politics, economics, the environment, and so on. So just think, okay, we're taking this project, it's been super successful in parts of East Africa, 
let's bring it to India. What do we need to know? So get in your groups, take a few minutes, think about what would be saying for you. Alright, let's talk about this. So what do you need to know about this place for this project to succeed? Yes. Well, when you first go into a village, you need to know the environment, you need to know their culture, their values, what's important to them. You also need to take into consideration like some statistical data on like their population. Because you don't want to provide too many or too less resources, so you want to provide the right amount. Mm -hmm. So pretty much everything. Okay. What else? We were talking about like on the like political or more like government side that you need to know like if it's allowed that your NGO can come into this village and also like the laws regarding that and like what you're about to do for them. So you might have to, on the political side, you might need to register my NGO, what laws are there that I need to be sure to follow so I'm not breaking the laws and going to jail in India. Does the government, how do I go to particular villages? Can I actually, in some countries, you can just go to whatever village you want. In other places, you have to go through the government. You have to request permissions to do that. There are places in the world where you can't even travel to certain places in the country without permission from the government. So Egypt is that way. So in Egypt, a while back, and you can't just go wherever you want in Egypt. There are certain places where you can go, and if you want to go off those places, you have to go and get permission and go with someone from the government. Yeah. Maybe like does it jeopardize local businesses? Like some farmers might rely on selling grain. Okay, so are you going to undercut the local economy by bringing in some new economic activity? Are you actually going to inadvertently hurt some people when trying to help others? Yeah. Kind of along the same lines as like property boundaries, like where you can and can't just plant things. Okay, yeah, so where can you plant things, where can you not? So this might get, again, into property rights or laws. What else? Yeah. Um, having to culture, we talked a little about like religious um, observances. Okay, so why would you need to know about religious observances? Like if they can or cannot eat certain foods or if they have to be prepared certain ways or grow in certain places. Yeah, so lots of people around the world don't eat pork, actually. Muslims don't eat pork, Hindus don't eat pork, Jews don't eat pork. So this idea that you may have been in a community where pork was a totally wonderful thing, chances are actually most, arguably most places in India, this would actually not be successful. So you want to know what are their values, what are their culture in terms of religious norms. Yeah. The environment, you have to look and see, you know, the climate and the weather, and depending on if you can actually plant and use the ground and if it's actually going to grow. Yeah, so will these particular crops grow? Yeah. The workforce mm -hmm. in that community or like as far as distribution is concerned, how you're going to get those products out. Yeah, so who are you going to ask to raise these crops or raise these animals? Is this a gender empowerment program? You're going to try to get women to grow crops? What's going to happen when you do that? If you try to empower women, what if you're in a place that actually women are very much not empowered? You might make the men angry. If you really make the men angry, they might retaliate against the women, and your women empowerment program goes completely haywire, where you end up with a bunch of men beating up their wives because they're getting empowered. So you want to think about how do you actually, what workers are you going to use? So something that people don't always think about is that food 
not just is religiously significant, so things like not eating pork, but a lot of people don't want to change their food habits. Actually, most people don't want to change food habits or eating habits. So here, bringing in grains like millet and sorghum, which are both relatively strong tasting grains, they're super healthy, so much more healthy than what's probably the staple grain in India, rice. But getting people to start eating some new food is actually quite difficult to do. So you have to think about the cultural practices, and you might need to actually spend even more time convincing people to eat the millet or the sorghum as you do planting it and like preparing sort of who's going to work on it and all these things. Good question. Is it possible to have potential competitors when you go to like foreign countries, like or just people who don't believe? and like the organization's morals or values mm -hmm. or anything like that. So mm -hmm. that's something to consider. Yeah, so you might also be, let's say you're going to a Hindu part of India and you're evangelical Christian organization. So you're bringing this program, but you're also actually trying to convert people to Christianity, even if it's like in a relatively subtle way. You might actually be rejected as an organization for trying to proselytize. Where do NGOs find their translators? Are they provided at all by the government, or do you hire them? Usually you'd hire them, or most NGOs, actually, this is a great question, so most NGOs working in developing countries have mostly staff from the country they're working in. Look at CARE, which is a very large international organization based in the US. You go to the CARE headquarters, in a capital city of a country, and there might be, let's say there's 50 staff, there might be one to five non-national staff, foreign staff. Once you go outside of the headquarters of that office to like a regional office, you probably don't have any international staff. They're probably all staffed by people from that country, so that's where most of it is. So one last thing that I wanted to talk about just real quickly is challenges in the political environment. We don't always think about this because we live in a democracy, but if you're working in an authoritarian setting, so you're working in a non-democracy, you might have challenges where in some countries you're not, there's not freedom of association. So it's actually, you're not allowed to gather people together to discuss issues or to work on programs. Or you can do it, but only when the government is involved. Uh, the government organizes it and you go with them. Some countries are actually very anti-democracy. So if you want to empower people, even if you're doing economic <laughs> empowerment, they might not like that. So government leaders might not like anything that is empowerment, even if it's not directly confrontational, it's not anti-corruption. You do also have, though, high levels of corruption in a lot of countries. You might work in war zones or areas of high insecurity. And so then, if you think about the political conditions, you're facing really different set of environmental factors. So what do you do if you're working in Syria as an NGO versus what do you do if you're working in a totally peaceful place like Ghana? So you're going to have really different ways of acting. Thank you for your attention.